Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Alexis McGill-Johnson, president of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Planned Parenthood is a national nonprofit organization that provides communities with access to quality, affordable health care, including sexual health care. Alexis has had a lengthy association with Planned Parenthood, having served as a board member and its chair prior to being appointed as its president a few years ago. Before taking on the Planned Parenthood presidency, she co-founded the Perception Institute, a research group studying bias reduction and discrimination. And prior to that, She helped lead our young folks to the polls as a political director of the Hip Hop Summit Network and the director of P. Diddy's Citizen Change, where she launched their amazing Vote or Die campaign. Clearly, she's been advocating for justice on the political and healthcare fronts for quite a while. She's also taught political science and African-American history at Yale and Wesleyan universities. By the way, you do not look nearly old enough to have done all of these things. But <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I digress. <laughs> she and her husband, Rob Johnson, an economist who's president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, have two daughters, Sarah and Dylan. And if I have this right, Sarah is 13. Is yes. that right? And yes. Dylan is 10. Yes, correct. Great. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Alexis. Oh, hey. I'm so excited to be here, Carol. I've been listening since you started and I'm oh. always just full of gems hearing from so many people that we both know and looking forward to being here. Great. And I'm so happy to have you here with us today. I have so many parenting topics and issues that I've been looking forward to discussing with you. So let's get started. So I want to talk about Planned Parenthood's broad healthcare mission and how parents can be helped by its many resources. But before I do, I just need to start with the elephant in the room. The Supreme Court's removal of women's right to abortion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. So we all know, unfortunately, that our constitutional right to abortion has been taken away. But when I've heard you talk about this, while you denounce the decision, of course, you say that Planned Parenthood, while it fights to continue to provide access to abortion, still has hope. So my first question is, what fuels the hope? I think that's my job, right? My job, my job is to be a hope dealer, um, particularly in a moment like this. You know, I think that, first of all, we've known that this decision was going to come, if not in, in this case there were about 17 or 18 other cases that were going directly to challenge Roe. And as soon as the last um, Supreme Court justice was confirmed to create the conservative supermajority, we knew that the the end of Roe was near. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when you have a moment when you know, you realize that at, at one day you're no longer going to be defending Roe and it forces you to look at all of the ways in which you know, as our reproductive justice colleagues have said, Roe was never the, Roe was always the floor, right? Because there were a lot mm-hmm. of people who lived in states who may have had the right, but did not ha- actually have access because of all the limitations. I think it forces you to reimagine and reconstruct what that right should be. And so I get a lot of hope, I think, in this moment, as painful as it is, and certainly the impact to so many um, patients across the country who are going through some really devastating challenges I get a lot of hope in reimagining and thinking about how to rebuild and reconstruct the right in a way that is more expansive and inclusive and make sure that it centers particularly black and brown communities that are going to be most impacted by not being able to control our own bodies. Mm -hmm. So 
I would add that that people also showed up this summer. You know, we saw mm-hmm. them in Kansas. I guarantee we'll see them in states like Michigan and really all throughout the country. Um, increased voter registration among women, among young people, among people of color in ways that I think people understand how losing access to this right, the right to abortion, the right to control our bodies is also going to translate into the loss of other rights and maybe even the loss of our democracy. Mm -hmm. So I think that intersection of all the things that I've been working on throughout my career have given me hope because I think we actually do have the tools in this moment to fight back. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to hear. And um, I'm going to ask you now a question that I'm going to come back to in various points in this conversation. And it has to do with how we talk to our children about issues. And have you thought much about how we can talk to our children, particularly our daughters? And, and I'm thinking our daughters who are in middle school and above about the import of this decision. I mean, you and I live in in states in which uh, it's likely that our children would not be denied the ability should they choose to have an abortion, but there are many places where what was once available won't be. What kind of things can we tell? Let's talk about hope. I mean, should we be educating them differently? I mean, how? what do we say to them when, this, it, when it becomes far more difficult for them to exercise this right? Yeah. I mean, first, I would say that, that actually, I think the opposition to abortion has made it clear that their end game is to ban all access to abortion care and, and so many other things that are attendant with that, right? They are looking for a national six-week ban. They're looking to create a constitutional amendment to protect the unborn, you know, in ways that will be incredibly limiting of our abilities to control our own bodies. And so even though we live in a safe, safe state, um, a safer mm-hmm. state, the reality of, of what this could look like in future years, I think, I, I shudder to think about it. I shudder to think about what could happen for Dylan and Sarah, who are 10 and 13. You know, I think it's important to talk to them about what what bodily autonomy is, right? What does it mean mm-hmm. to actually have the right to govern your own body? You know, we start, you know, in sex education talking about that at very early age. What's an appropriate touch and not an appropriate touch, right? Mm-hmm. How to actually not impose a hug on a child who doesn't want one, right? I think mm-hmm. all the things that, you know, we grew up do, probably doing and having to do are go ahead, give, you know, give, give your aunt so-and-so a hug, you know? Give or, this stranger I've just introduced you to a hug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, those are the things that we are playing back in in age-appropriate ways. And so I think that there's just at the fundamental core, what it means to actually control your own body is an opportunity to have a conversation, I think, across many um, issues around sexual reproductive health care. And, you know, as they get older, understanding what consent looks like, what identity looks like, what having agency, not just over your body, but in relationships looks like. And I think those are the things, um, I think, particularly at Planned Parenthood with our, our resources that we look to, to support parents, how to navigate those conversations through every stage, right? From preschool mm-hmm. to high school, you know, well, maybe from two to 92, um, <laughs> in between, <laughs> So that's really great that you mentioned that because that's actually the next thing that I want to talk about. That is Planned Parenthood's broader mission to educate people about sexual health. And particularly, as I was really happy to see on your website, specific guidance for parents to talk to their children about all sorts of issues. You've mentioned them, sort of body autonomy and and sex, consent, body image. I mean, these are issues that so many parents 
feel uncomfortable about discussing. And I was really happy to see that it's broken down into age segments and then sort of suggested ways to talk to your children about these things. How do you, how would you advise parents generally? I mean, we all have to sort of look inside first, right? <laughs> with respect to talking about these issues with our kids. <laughs> Yeah. Well, look, I reflect on how I was taught by, you know, I was taught by my friends, not by my mom. Um, She's not somebody who could freely say words, you know, like name, name body parts, you know, um, correctly for me, right? She just didn't have the language. And I think in some ways, what that teaches you implicitly is how is stigma, right? It's it's mm-hmm. thinking that you, that you shouldn't be talking about your body, that you shouldn't be asking questions, and that when you don't have a trusted kind of partner at at home to have that conversation, you will find it in other places. It may be friends, you know, increasingly on the internet. And I think we should be concerned about that, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, not all your friends have the best information, and quite frankly, there's so much noise and information to cut through online. And so that's why I'm really proud of the kind of resources that Planned Parenthood offers for parents and for care caregivers to find the kind of guidance they need on how to talk to kids of any age about the various topics. And, and, you know, we provide resources and videos and theories around, you know, both English and Spanish about how to start those conversations in the right way. And I just think that's really incredibly valuable. I think it's really important that the way we communicate, it kind of sets up for kids what a healthy relationship looks like right? Mm -hmm. What a a healthy, honest, uncomfortable conversation looks like. And I think that's something that we all need a little bit more help um, navigating. (laughs) No, that's absolutely right. Now, I agree. I mean, I thought my mom was so savvy and knew so much and I always looked up to her, but she definitely felt as if, particularly as I got a little older, that she should not be the person. I mean, she's, I sort of got the basic birds and bees, but when I got older into high school and I wanted some more details, she's like, when you're ready to have those kind of relationships, you won't need to ask me, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I, I, I understood. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, and, and so, but, but, but it's hard. I mean, I have three children and it's, I knew I didn't want to say that, but, but it's hard to, to sort of know what to say. You actually, in a different context, have this great quote, which I'm going to give back to you because it really fits into what we're talking about now. A few years ago, you did this amazing talk and you asked the question, how do we challenge ourselves to have conversations that may feel uncomfortable, but to have them in a way where we focus on the experience the other person is having, as opposed to the anxiety that it's causing us? And how do we do it with a little bit of kindness? And when I heard that, you weren't referring to parents and children specifically, but that is to me the question. I mean, as parents, we have to sort of see how our children are reacting and see how eager they are for the information and focus on that versus whatever history we're going through in our own heads yes. <laughs> about how tough it is. And and it's really important to be kind, as you say. It's sort of, I mean, I guess you can start out by saying that it's going to be uncomfortable. So everybody knows that if you feel a little squirrely, so be it. Oh, one thing I also wanted to say, and I want to know if you agree that if you have a partnership and you're raising a child, it's okay if just one partner takes the lead as opposed to not saying anything because you're both not on the same page. Is is that right? I think that's right. I think that what's important is for you as partners to think about what is the experience you want your child to have with you as a resource, mm-hmm. right? You want your child to be able to come to you when they need you. And I think increasingly mm-hmm. more, you know, obviously given the, the set of circumstances that 
many children and teenagers and young adults will be mm-hmm. facing in the mm-hmm. coming years. And I think that to me, getting over the awkwardness, I'm, I'm right in the middle of these conversations right mm-hmm. now, obviously <laughs> with a 13-year-old, getting over the awkwardness Uh, or at least letting my desire to be a trusted resource be stronger than my anxiety, right? I'm like choosing (laughs) what what I want the end game to be. And that helps Mm -hmm. me then say, you know what, I'm going to, that's going to help me mitigate some of the anxiety I have, because I know at the end of this, I want her to be able to come and talk to me because that's, that's what I value. And that's what I know she would value. I find that, that oftentimes kids signal what they want to talk about when they want to talk about it. They may not necessarily ask directly. They'll ask around it. Mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I remember, right. What it, you know, we remember a little bit what it was like Mm -hmm. to be young and navigating some of the same challenges that they are navigating now. How do you get comfortable with your own body when it's changing? You know, your clothes start to fit differently. You Mm -hmm. have different kind of responsibilities with your care, your body care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that it's really important to be there to help navigate those feelings associated with that and to affirm them as valid, not scary. Um, And I think ultimately, you know, ending, you know, um, with the goal of getting to a place where you become the trusted resource, um, Mm -hmm, you know, that mm -hmm. you always point them to one if it's, if it's something that you don't know. Yeah, I I really do think the trusted resource is really important because what almost goes with that saying is your 10-year-old, your 13-year-old is bombarded with images of of sexuality, of body images. And if we aren't the trusted resources, they're going to, they'll have, like like we all did, you'll get the information from somewhere. (laughs) And because there is so much talk about body positivity, body image. I mean, a lot of good talk, but a lot of talk about how you should feel about your body or what you should think is an attractive body. I just think it's really helpful to have an an adult presence that can kind of help navigate through so much that they're exposed to. I'm I'm sounding like an old fuddy-duddy, but so much of current media, current music and media, which I love, I just, I feel as if it sort of speeds up the conversation in some instances when, you know, everybody's listening to music and all. I'm not saying don't listen to it, but it just raises things that you might not ordinarily have that conversation so early. But but it's important if you can have it with as little skirmishness as possible. Oh, I um, mean, my daughter <laughs> knows the word to WAP by Cardi B. Yep. She's mm-hmm. like in the car. And I said, well, what do you think <laughs> WAP means? And she laughed and she said, work and play. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Apparently there's a kids bot version of it. Uh. <laughs> but I think I think what's what's really interesting is that like the, the sexuality has always been there, right? Mm-hmm, the, you know, mm-hmm. it's always been a part of of, of culture in a in a very strong way, particularly mm-hmm. from the 70s, 60s, 70s on. I think what what our children have that we didn't have is a greater set of representation, right? Around mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. from body image to hair to color. They have access to kind of language that helps them. That's more of a menu to say, you know, I want, I want this, this, and this, as opposed to I have to fit into this or that. And that I think is, is something that I think is a tool for us to start to encourage them to explore those various ways of identifying themselves and not being narrow cast and learning how to switch back and forth between cultures. I think that's, that's a hope I have for them. 
Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, there's so much more to talk about. And as parents, we have to be comfortable talking about everything that there is to talk about. So even if your children are younger, it's time to just start really thinking through whatever your biases are and putting them aside and understanding that to be that trusted resource, you've got to be that have the open mind. So you mentioned hair. So I've, I've got to ask you this question because I thought it was a very a very cute circumstance. I'm dying to know what happened. So a couple of years ago, you tweeted about your daughter, who I guess that was your older daughter when she was 11. She wanted to dye her hair pink. Yes. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And when you told her that that was not a good idea, she came back at you with what? Um, that it was her body was her own. I mean, probably what you had been telling her. <laughs> yes, I was, you, you know, so a couple things. One, I invested a, a good part of my, uh, my career at the Perception Institute. Um, I designed the good hair study. So really mm. looking at bias in natural hair and trying to get people to encourage that natural expression, you know, some of which that research has gone on to inform things like the crown act. So like, you know, I'm here, you know, out here saying, yes, we, we, we should be completely comfortable with everything that comes out of our heads and how we show up. And my daughter said, you know, she goes to a school where she wears uniforms. And one of the only differentiators they have is at some point they can paint their nails and another one they can change their hair. And she came back and was like, I want pink hair. And the first thing I said, oh, we don't do that in our house. <laughs> <laughs> I may have even gone so far to say, is that, I'm not sure, Brown, we don't do that. We don't, we don't do that. <laughs> and she was like, well, I don't understand. I hear you on the phone talking about bodily autonomy. I hear you talking about being able to make decisions for your own body. And this is my decision and I want to do it. And I just thought, you know, she won the argument for me right there. I took her to my salon. I let her <laughs> sit with the tinfoil in and, you know, she came out with a deep shade purple, but she even more than that had just such a deep joy of agency that I thought mm -hmm. was also really valuable. She was really, really proud of that decision and she really owned it. And I think I was great. You know, I didn't love it, <laughs> mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, I really loved it for her, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm impressed with that story, Alexis, <laughs> because I know that had my 11 year old daughter and she's much older than that now. But back in that day when she had come to me with that, even though intellectually I would have respected every aspect of that conversation, <laughs> it would have been tough, much tougher to the point of I can pretty much say I wouldn't have been able to yes. say, let's go to the salon <laughs> and turn our hair pink. So I, I mean, I, I, I understand completely. I should say that one of my son's dyed a part of his hair blonde at some point, And he was much, much older. There was not anything I could do or say. And even though I didn't think that was a great idea, I had to, he was really happy and, you know, it's not blonde anymore, but in any event. So I get that watching your children express themselves is really important. But this actually makes me wonder about how do you think that parents can hold on to some aspects of their values? Like, I mean, on the one hand, you want to give your children agency and they're going to be smart and they're going to figure out that things like if you say it's it's my body, I should be able to do whatever I want, just like you said. But as a parent, there's also this, um, I mean, pink hair is one thing, but there could be other things that kind of go further along, whatever your spectrum of, I don't think so is, yeah. you know, when, and, and so how do we kind of hold both of those desires? I mean, we don't want to shut them down, but by the same token, can we just sort of say, go for it? I mean, be, because 
they can? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I think p- parenting is part of negotiation and conversation, right? I think mm-hmm. for me, the dyeing the hair and, you know, with semi-permanent washed out over mm-hmm. a set of months, <laughs> we didn't commit to fully, you know, mm-hmm. I, it, it was an, it was an easy option for agency, right? To, mm-hmm. to be able to test. And I, that's what I think that, that real, that joy, that feeling, that expression, my 10 year old now, she loves Sephora. She loves makeup. She will show up with a full, will go on YouTube tutorials and you know, <laughs> and come out with glitter everywhere. And Planned Parenthood, they say glitter is the STD of crafts. <laughs> Ends up everywhere. Um, think about how like my mother wouldn't even let us wear black, much less, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. come out with a full face of, of anything. And so I think that part of it is like, what are the, what's the low stakes way of creating agency in a way where you mm-hmm, can have, mm-hmm. let them have the experience, let them experiment um, in ways and have conversations around how it made them feel, why they wanted to, um, you know, and build that muscle. So as the decision points get harder and as mm-hmm, the decision mm-hmm. points, particularly in a time where I know you've, you've probably covered and talked about the level of anxiety that so many young people are experiencing post pandemic mm-hmm. um, and in this era that we're, we're building that muscle for how to have those conversations. And that's what mm-hmm. I think about. Like when I see, when I go to the health centers to visit at Planned Parenthood, like what I see, we have some health centers inside of high schools in, in our Planned Parenthood Los Angeles affiliate. And I mm-hmm. see those young girls going in just to have conversations with nurse practitioners about what's going on with their bodies. And I see them walk out with that level of agency, that level of empowerment that they are able to guide a conversation about what they need. So as best as I can model that and always have in the back of my head, I'm sure my mom would never let me do that. (laughs) Or, you know, I think that's a good muscle to be building. Absolutely. I'm just reminded of a quick story where I similarly stepped away from the way I was brought up and, and felt better for it. The older two were watching a movie and I can't even recall the comedic actor, but he was kind of PG and, and, and used a bunch of words that I didn't want the little one to know. So I went in, I heard they were watching this movie and I'm hand on hip. I'm ready to sort of, you know, get mad at them. And the baby, the young one said to me, okay, I've heard these words before. I know I'm not supposed to say them. It's really funny movie. Can I just watch the movie? And I'm sort of like, um, okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, to your point, it was kind of an easier currency. It was, it was like money in the bank for, first of all, as a parent, you get credit for actually listening to your child and doing something they like. Yeah. So they, there's, they want to do and that you don't always, you can't always do that. So when you do that, that's definitely a chip that you get to hold on to. And then as you said, there are going to be things where you won't be able to get to where they want you to. And I think you just have more credibility back to sort of continuing that trust concept. If you were, mm-hmm. if you can just figure out some ways to be okay with stuff that, that you generally aren't. It's so interesting be, with respect to parenting. We talk about uncomfortable situations, not bad, but uncomfortable. You get into them a lot with your children. <laughs> yes. And it's how, I mean, I, I, I it's, it's, recognizing it's doing your own noticing, right? Like like you have self-awareness around what is making you uncomfortable and where you need to push past that. I think that's where I've really found as, as a parent that when she was dyeing her hair pink, all I could think about was like, okay, are the teacher's going to treat her differently? You know, (laughs) what if some friend doesn't like it? Or, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. like, is this going to be the beginning of 
everything. Pierce, yeah, yeah, pierce exactly cheeks or tattoo on the face. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That could be the gateway to something else. But it just, and I was thinking about my own anxieties, not necessarily mm-hmm. what she wanted, I think, in that moment. And I think her ability to articulate so clearly what, why yeah. she wanted, I think, made it really easier to make that decision. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So I'm going to quickly pivot just a bit because I want to ask you about how you grew up and how you were parented. And I've read that you were raised in a house full of women. You had your father was there as well, but by parents who were cultural black nationalists. <laughs> <laughs> and so I need details. <laughs> yes, yes. So my, um, my mother worked for AT&T. We grew up in the New Jersey area and like her whole career was at AT&T. My father was a doctor and they would go to work, you know, and do their, <laughs> their daytime gigs. And then at night, people would come over and they would organize. They would figure out how to get computers in the church, you know, basement, because that was the new thing that we needed to get on top of. So we didn't get left behind or they would take us to marches and they would come home with these like dashikis and we'd have Afro puffs and they, you know, (laughs) we'd be just marching, you know, um, for whatever cause. And so it was just really funny because my mom had such a, um, she, she was such a professional code switcher, right? You could always tell when she was on the work phone and you know her, how her voice would change. And then when her girlfriends would call her and it would be a totally different scenario um, at home. And I grew up watching that code switching and that that was like the way to, to navigate. And we would listen to Malcolm X records on the weekends, like, you know, no Disney for you. <laughs> <laughs> Some ways it was just like I was begging for a star, a good Star Wars movie, but we always have to you know, sit and listen to the "I Have a Dream" speech or whatever, whatever the next thing was. So, so I have to ask. Kudos to your parents for definitely sort of inculcating that you in that history. But how did that impact? You, what your raising of your children? Do you have them listening to Malcolm X records or? <laughs> no. Um, if anything, honestly, I think my husband does. He is um, he is someone who is kind of just deeply invested culturally and in trying to make sure that they are exposed to so many different things. I think I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, um, I talk a lot about what it means to be black, what it means to me to be black and what it means mm-hmm. to me to be proud. And I expose them to the things that are happening when you can't hide, you know, some of the horrific things mm-hmm. that are happening across the country in particular. And so I, I make sure to have conversations with them. Um, I use, you know, whether it's the newspaper or listening to like NPR in the mornings as ways to kind of start conversation starters and hear how they feel about things. But I think it's been really important for us to make sure that they're surrounded by a wide range of folks. But I think I've, I've really paid a lot of attention, like I think many of our friends have, trying to make sure that they have a core group, particularly of aunties and uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of cousins of color to help make meaning of some of the things that they're saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what about since you taught African-American history? I mean, do you, is that part of their homeschooling? I mean, or do they, do you just work to make sure that they get sort of the history in school? Yeah, I definitely, I mean, the, um, like, even with respect to losing the right to uh, abortion with the Dobbs decision, 
the conversation has been like, this is the first time we've lost a right in this country. It's the first time we've lost a right. And I say, well, actually, you know, reconstruction, um, you know, here's an opportunity to talk about like why federal protections are important. And when you lose the federal protections and, and then the states are able to decide what constitutes freedom and what doesn't in each state for which group and whatnot, this is why we have to pay attention. And so I've been spending a lot more time kind of thinking through some of those things, you know, mm-hmm. with the suffragettes uh, centennial that we just celebrated a couple of years ago, being able to, to tell the story of the Black women who marched, who were very much a part of, the, of securing the right to vote, even though they couldn't participate and had to march at the back of the line. And, you know, and so I, I, and I think what it's contributed to for particularly for the, you know, I hear a lot in the, in the youngest one, but it is a, in both of them, really a sense of fairness, right? That, mm-hmm, that they mm-hmm. are, they, they feel very hurt when they see something that is unfair. And I think that mm-hmm. that from a value standpoint of being able to recognize when bias is operating, even when it's not obvious mm-hmm. to be able to recognize how discrimination gets embedded into systems and structures, I think is is part of what I have tried to do through mm-hmm. some of those stories. So I'm I'm going to wrap up now, but it just before I do, I would spend another episode talking to you about the your work before parenthood, which is in bias training. And and so I'm not able to do that, but I encourage everyone to go find the YouTube information, their YouTube videos of you talking about the, the really fascinating training that you've done in terms of how our brain, our, our brains are wired in ways that can contribute to our biases, but that how we can train them to not be wired that way and how we can work with our children in various stages to, to sort of combat their acquisition of biases. It's, it's really fascinating. <laughs> so, and I, in, in, in another session, I would love to talk about that, but I just want to note for the listeners that in addition to being this amazing head of this organization and having all this other great uh, talent, she, in, in another life, <laughs> she had this incredible, still has, I'm sure, this incredible research-based uh, uh, profession where you just open our eyes to really, really important information about bias. So just had to put that plug in there for you. <laughs> oh, can I just actually say really quickly, though, it's one of those things that most opened my eyes about the research on bias is how early it is formed, right? I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't have these conversations with kids because we think they're innocent. We don't want to corrupt them. You know, we want them to imagine their, their life being free. And really, our job is to help them make meaning at every single age as to what's happening so they don't personalize it and internalize it. Mm-hmm, but really, mm-hmm. between ages two and five, kids are already noticing difference. Between five and eight, they are starting to understand negative stereotypes and, how, and who gets benefits based on those. And essentially, by 10, those stereotypes have hardened. Mm. And we are you know, asking people to unlearn from 10 to 100 all the things that they've learned from two to 10 mm-hmm, and think mm-hmm. about kind of how that plays out. Out. And so I think it's so much of the work that you've been doing at Ground Control Parenting and like kind of helping us understand kind of how these things are affecting kids in various ways. I think we it would it would do us all good to like really think about at that very beginning age, what are we teaching um, around bias to help us make understanding better? I, I absolutely agree. And I will just quickly add that I've had parents of young people say to me, I don't want, it, it, particularly even if in, say, third grade, something they are begun to be taught in school, some issues that the parents don't think they're ready for. And they're like, I don't want them to learn this yet. And, and to your point, it's really important the parents know that 
we're the first teachers and we have the ability to help our children process this information. We have the ability to help them understand in a bigger context. And if we just sort of put on blinders or turn away and say they're too young, it, it's really doing them a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so Alexis, I could, as I said, I could have a whole other episode, but I'm, I'm going to stop here. But before I, I, I want to thank you, of course, because as I imagined and, and knew, our conversation has been chock full with really interesting and important advice for parents. But we have one more thing before we go, and that is for you to play the quick GCP lightning round. <laughs> which I just have four very quick questions that I ask of all of my guests. And so the first one is, your favorite poem or saying? So lately, um, it's been a poem by Alice Walker, and the title of it is Hope is a Woman Who Has Lost Her Fear. Oh, I love the title. Oh, that's great. That is great. Now give me two favorite children's books, and they can be children's books that you remember fondly or that you your children love that you read to them a lot. Uh, so my girls loved the Rebel Girls, and there's a Black Girl Magic <laughs> version of it that we've gone through. Just each stories of amazing women who've done fabulous things, and they like to pick up, you know, one story at a time and just explore kind of their her life would have been like. My favorite book, which I still give, is Harold and the Purple Crayon. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I love it. There's something about when he when he drew up the covers. <laughs> <laughs> that just it makes me giggle to this day um, and thinking about just the imagination that he created with that crayon. Oh, great. Okay, two more quick questions. A mom moment that you'd love to do over. And I'm not asking for any deep revelation here, but just something that you're like, hmm, <laughs> that might not have gone as well as I'd like. And, and then I'll just tell you the other one. Conversely, the time you knew you nailed it as a mom, just something that really great that happened. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, the, the do over moment, I, I would say it's actually like a set of moments. And I think particularly over the last couple of years that where I have been on the road a lot, I've traveled a lot, I've tried mm -hmm. to stay as much in contact and FaceTime and calling and everything, but not being fully present in those moments. They, mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I feel like they recognize it. Um, mm -hmm. or they know they're being rushed <laughs> to get off. <laughs> I really wish, and I, I hope moving forward, because I'm getting on the road again, is going to be one where I'm really focused and present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And tell me about when you nailed it, when you just said, ah, oh, I have this mother thing down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I want to say the, the day the decision came down um, this was an incredibly, uh, obviously hard moment. I was in Washington with my boards and my oldest was on a trip to Maine to go to sleepaway camp. And she texted mm -hmm. me from the bus and she said, Mommy, I'm so sorry about Roe being overturned, but we are going to keep fighting. We're going to keep oh. fighting. And then I came back and we were invited to march. Planned Parenthood was invited to lead the Pride Parade in New York City. And my daughter, Dylan, and I, you know, led the front line. And, and there's a great picture that came out in the paper the next day of us just with that energy, um, mm -hmm. our matching outfits, you know, <laughs> with all of the flavor capturing kind of what that fight looked like. And I just felt like for both of them, they really understood the moment and they, and they were able to meet it in such a powerful way. Ah, those are great, great, great. So, Alexis, thank you again so much for being with us today. I mean, as I said, a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Carol. It's so good to talk to you. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. 
please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.